Loveless Oregon is a short story collection by Elliot Matson about death, rebirth, prosperity, and its pitfalls. Each story takes place in the same building in the same town across many years. The stories feature disparate characters in different situations linked by their geography and imposing omnipresent supernatural forces. All stories were written, narrated, recorded, and produced by me, Elliot Matson. If you want to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash loveless. But for now, sit back and enjoy the story. Welcome to Loveless. Oh, it's all at the Oregon Loveless Oregon, story number nine, Incantation. The children were young, younger than you or I may have been when we first began to paint the corners of the harsh, shrouded realizations of this world. Still young enough to get lost in their imaginations without feeling compelled to so swiftly find their way out. However, with each passing season, their precociousness forced more structure into their malleable minds. In the same way, the men took a grove of cedars placed in natural harmony and geometrically reorganized them into a weir. In the same way, that weir took once freely swimming salmon in the river and confined them to an underwater enclosure. Moochik floated his hand through the darkness, weaving it carefully past pockets of perforated afternoon light. He could be anything he wanted down in his cave. Down here, he was only voice, movement, shadow, and spirit. If only his cunning, his wit, his bravery were attributed to who he was down here rather than who he was in the village. Undervalued. Underutilized. Alone. Hey, Moot, are you still in there? Though, not the type of alone he actually enjoyed being. Moot sat perfectly still, hearing the dirt shift with each of his older sister's uncomfortable steps and shimmies. It was no use. Of course she knew where he was. She always had to know everything. Yes he said with a groan. Saya felt blindly through the darkness until she reached his chubby cheeks with her bony hands. She gave them a squeeze and he shook her away like a bee. Saya made entertainment out of annoying her little brother. It was her way of showing affection. Their mother said to look out for him, especially now. She was worried. She always worried about everything. The very land on this earth simply floated upon the vast, flat ocean, and their mother still would worry that one day they would reach the edge and fall off. Say explained to her mother the lunacy of this theory, justifying that the Maker would not allow this to happen. It's not a matter of allowance, her mother would rebut. It's a matter of causality. It always came back to that with her. Help prepare dinner or the Maker will shun you. Go to sleep or the sun may never come up. Look after your brother or the land would fall off the edge of the earth. Say and Moot often joked about this. But not now. She could tell Moot was in one of his moods, and Moot could tell she could tell he didn't want to be bothered. It's getting dark. Don't you want to come up? She said. She made her way into the little space and sat against the dirt wall, her shins against his like two sets of pillars. You know you're not supposed to be down here. Slee will worry more than she already does. She hates it when you're down here. Why? Moot tried to ignore his sister. Because you dug a cave under the house? So? Ta helped me do it, remember? It's my fort. Well, Ta isn't here anymore. Maybe... Maybe that's why she hates you coming down here, I don't know. Or maybe she just likes to know where her beautiful little baby boy is at all times. Saya rolled toward him and tussled his hair as her eyes began to adjust. I said stop, Saya! Everyone was bigger than Moot. 
Even his sister, who was older, yes, but his sister, nonetheless, could overpower him. Anyway, I don't care. I don't want to come up. Too bad. The all-powerful shaman Saya commands you. She compels you. Saya wiggled her fingers and poked him in the ribs. Moot couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> That's not even what a shaman does. Moot's sister had dreams of her own, but Moot liked to point out his were actually achievable. And besides, girls can't be shamans. Saya recoiled and kicked Moot in the shin. She started to crawl out of the cave and turned back. Yeah, well, scared little boys can't be adventurers. Now come up here before I tell Tlee. Besides, it's the last day for a whole year we get to hear tribal stories, so move it. Moot fumed for a minute and tried to remember his graceful hand movements through the darkness. But the light was waning and Saya had ruined his concentration. He didn't care if Tlee didn't like him to be down here. He felt closer to Ta this way. He didn't like that Ta was buried in a canoe near the house. That had nothing to do with Moot. It didn't pay homage to their relationship. Moot didn't even like the water. So he wanted to remember Ta to be with him in his own way. Moot growled as Saya again called after him down the cave entrance. He crawled toward the echo up after his sister. Evening air kissed Moot's face like his mother after he'd done something wrong. Loving yet brisk with a bite of fragile callousness. The village bustled with families returning to their homes for the last potlatch of the month. Secluded fires glowed and embers floated to a trickle. Generally, Tlee was scared of all these fires going at once. The drought, Moot and Saya's mother said, it's not good to light fires in the forest. Even a tiny spark could raise the village. What they needed was rain, and you didn't want to get her started on if they had too much rain. But she acquiesced on the plentiful fires to get into the spirit and tradition, to perhaps step into the shoes of Ta, always a natural storyteller, and give her children something to love about her. Tlee, Moot, and Saya's house stood at the far east side of the village. To some, it was considered the outskirts. Ta used to joke that for ocean dwellers, they sure had a hard time seeing the ocean. But that's just how things were, he assured. And besides, there was plenty to appreciate about their view. If you can't see the forest for the trees, you certainly can't see the ocean for the fish. Seo would often implore her father to stop with that analogy because it didn't make any sense. The ocean wasn't made of fish. If it were, we would never go hungry, he would say. They would all laugh, and Tlee would feel left out, having not heard the conversation at all, too busy worrying about the next thing and the next. Tlee called for Moot outside, her voice rolling off the dying, brittle boughs of Sitka trees. Parched branches crackled along with the fires, many trees succumbing to the unseasonably arid winter. The boy squinted through the dampening light. Ty used to take him on evening walks just before bed. Moot would hold his father's hand and be led through the labyrinth, wondering aloud how his father always knew the way home. When you know where home is, you can always get back to it, he would assure his son. Moot hadn't taken a walk since Todd died. He wanted to, said he would every day, but by the time night cast its shadow and the trees became shrouded in menace, he quickly postponed the voyage until tomorrow. By now, he'd lived so many tomorrows, simply trying to get back to yesterday. Tlee called for him again, this time more impatient, and Moot went inside the house. Say and Tlee were seated by the fire pit in the center of the humble living space. Their faces glowed, and in the red light, they looked similar. Moot liked to think he took after his father and say after their mother. Say and her mother had the same awkward, tall build and a gait like a sapling swaying in the breeze. Moot and his father were rounder, softer, but of course not in a weak way, just unproven. Tlee beckoned her son to join them by the fire, setting before him a few last pieces of dried salmon and a cup of candlefish oil from dinner. So, Tlee said as enthusiastically as she was able, who's ready to hear a story? Even after a month of storytelling, she still hadn't nailed the delivery as well as her late husband. She tried. It was all she could do to preserve his memory. 
Say and Moot leaned expectantly, but after a month of subpar recitations of the Alcee greatest hits, their expectations were curbed. Saya had quickly told Moot to go with it because it would make their mother feel better. So the children obliged with dutiful eyes. First, let us pray. Moot groaned and Saya issued a curt glare. Their mother held her children's soft hands and asked the maker for a reprieve from the drought as she had every night for months. If he could make it rain, thought Moot, just to put an end to this praying, he would. When she had concluded her sermon, Tlee said, And speaking of the maker, I'd like to tell you a story about him. She was very proud of her transition. We all know Suuku as the maker, continued Tlee. But who was he before he ascended to the sky country? It may surprise you, children, to know that he was Suuku the Wanderer, a petty trickster. As she spoke, the firelight shadows acted the story, once somnambulant shapes now picaresque dancing across the walls. Saya nodded in respectful awe while Moot simply rolled his eyes. Yeah, we know, Tlee. We've all heard these stories. Moot, stop it, said Saya. She smacked her brother in the head. Ow! Saya, do not hit him. Why? He's being a jerk. Of course we've heard the stories. The least he could do is listen. Okay, fine, Moot pouted and took a bite of smoked fish. I'm sorry, children. I'm only trying to heighten the drama a bit. It's working, assured Saya. Seriously, go on. Tlee nodded solemnly. Okay, I will. Where was I again? Trickster. Yes, he was, in fact, a petty trickster. Most of his tricks were innocuous and not meant to cause any harm. Some would say his actions benefited us, transforming the people of his time into the animals and creatures we have today. But back then, his actions were more up for debate. Furthermore, dishonest or conniving behavior often angered the brutish and barbarian Anki. Suuku's friend, Coyote, would tell him not to pick fights with the Anki because they were bigger, meaner, and more powerful than he was. But Suuku would simply puff out his chest and say proudly, the kids chimed along in unison with their mother, imitating Ta, I have the strongest muscle of all. My mind. They laughed at Moot's pitch-perfect impression. He even had the finger raised down pat. Suuku realized that he could play games with the Anki, games of chance, wit, and skill which they would surely lose. As he got better, it became easier and easier for the trickster. He sometimes liked to make them think they had the upper hand when in fact he was playing them like a taut string of dentalium the whole time. He soon realized that if he raised the stakes, he could banish his people's tormentors from the earth for good. One by one he challenged them, and one by one the monsters fell into oblivion. Word began to spread about Suuku, and his services became requested farther and farther away. At this point, he transformed himself into the great whale spirit and leapt into the ocean. He traveled far and wide. Wherever Anki lay brooding in the shadows, Suuku would be there. Back and forth, up and down the coastlines, he swam. Everywhere that needed him, Suuku would be there. Eventually, the world was at peace, and Suuku transformed back into his human form. The new human inhabitants of this land and their animal predecessors asked him, What, great and powerful Suuku, do you intend to do now? Suuku thought about this for a moment. For years, his mind had constantly been at work. And now, it possessed a blankness that could only be deemed as enlightenment. And in that moment, he felt at peace with this. Suuku extended his hands, palms raised to the sky. I intend for you to live your lives, he told them all. Will we see you again? They said. No, he replied. But the last people will. With that, Suuku and his disciples ascended to the sky country, where they still live to this day. Now he is the maker the one who transformed the earth and people into what we see today, and we must be grateful. However, we must also never forget his roots. A powerful mind at rest is as dangerous as a powerful mind at work. 
The maker has every right to meddle in our lives if he pleases, to play a trick, to teach us a lesson. We must remain vigilant in our reverence and reverent in our vigilance. Question him? No. He asks the questions, and only he knows the true answers. The shadows melted into obscurity and painted the walls in shapelessness. Saya applauded with a proud grin across her face. Flea, you did it! A whole month of tribal stories! Thank the maker I don't have to do that again for another year. Ah, uh, we're ending with that one, said Moot. I thought you were going to at least tell the five brothers. Ta always told the five brothers. Flea frowned and stroked Moot's straight black hair. I'm sorry, my little Huckleberry. Even though I've heard it so many times, I just don't know that one as well as Ta. I always get mixed up on the grizzly bear piece. Moot pouted petulantly, as you can imagine he never would have if Ta was around. Moochick, said Saya. Give Tlee a break. Don't you like the story of Sa'uku? Yeah, I guess. But the Five Brothers is all about adventure. Moot jumped to his feet in a heroic pose. And the youngest is the most daring, the most cunning, the most clever, and always figures out a way to devise an escape from danger. So, you know, just like me. Moot wore a proud grin that was sorely wiped away by his sister's next comment. You can't escape from a hole in the ground. How are you going to escape from danger? Flee! Children, please, that's enough. Yeah, that's enough, Saya, said Moot, sticking out his tongue. Moot, didn't I tell you to fill in that hole? With the earth as dry as it is, the whole side of the house could fall down. Saya gave her little brother a sly side-eye and he blushed. His redness rivaled the flames in the center of the house. He balled his hands into tight fists and swiveled on one foot. I'm going to bed, said Moot. He huffed his way across the house and angrily tossed his buckskin over his shoulders. As the fire died down and Tlee and Saya also went to sleep, Moot sneakily peered out from under the blanket. He watched the last embers float from the ash up and out of the small house to join the stars, to join Ta. For an instant, he swore that if he traced a line connecting all of the bright, floating speckles, it revealed a whale's tail drifting in the moonlight. Sa'uku went from a trickster to a god. Moot thought it only realistic that he could go from little boy to great adventurer. He would show everyone. He just needed to do something great. Before morning opened its amber eyes upon the land, Moot quietly crept out of bed. He tiptoed out into the brisk February air and circled the house. From his fort, he excavated a small satchel he'd been gathering for any particularly adventurous occasion. And at last, he decided, this was going to be that occasion. He hoisted the satchel on his shoulder and placed Ta's cedar-bark-brimmed hat on his head. Sun rays fell through tree branches like harpoons through the sea. He knew he'd better not waste any time. Ta always knew his way around. He may not have been a valiant warrior, the most accurate marksman, the best fisherman, but he always knew where he was going. Moot thought it aided his father's natural storytelling abilities well. No matter what twists and turns the grand tales took, Ta found a way to bring it home. Moot procured the perfect tree limb to use as a walking stick and listened to the crunching leaves as he walked further into the woods. He couldn't even see the village anymore. The dense forest had enveloped the houses, the people, everything. Moot walked on. He was determined to get to the coast. He knew it wasn't even that far, but he hadn't been in the months since Ta died. The shaman said Ta fought the sickness bravely. In the end, his body simply succumbed to it. But the dead never truly leave us, he assured the family, and Moot already knew this as well. Or at least he told himself he knew it. Other children in the village said they would often see their ancestors roaming in the woods at night. The dead were left totems and tools to aid them in their new plane of existence. If you were respectful, they might even help you when you needed it most. 
one of the Alsea warriors often told a story about how he chased a Siusloth thief miles away from his camp on a hunting mission. All day and all night he ran. In his exhaustion, he tripped and tumbled into the ocean. The current was strong that day, waves taller than the main kin building. He clawed his way back to shore by the skin of his teeth. He was bruised and battered and bloody. Thankfully, he found the mouth of a nearby river. As much as he dreaded the long walk back to camp, he knew at least he could manage. But as he started the trek, he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. There, propped against a sapling by the shoreline, was the warrior's canoe he'd left at camp. He had to have been easily ten miles away at this point. The only explanation was that his late grandfather had dragged the boat to him in order to aid the warrior in his safe return. When would Ta return, thought Moot. So far, he didn't feel his father's presence at all. Not at home, not in his fort, not anywhere. All he felt was emptiness. At around what he assumed was noon, Moot stopped for lunch. He had snuck some of the smoked salmon and candlefish oil from his mother's pantry. He sat down in a grove beside a small creek that was barely a trickle and a row of huckleberry bushes. As Moot ate the salty fish, exhausting his jaw with every chew, he eyed the berries, their sweet purple hue vivid in the greenery. Alsi children were forbidden to eat huckleberries, under consequences of the ogress Luxowena. If you even touched her sacred treats, this monster would disembowel you and use your powdered bones as soil to plant a new bush. Moot pondered this story as goosebumps rose along his arms. He hadn't packed enough food. Or water. And the berries looked moist and supple. Besides, he was ten years old now. Was he really going to believe a cannibal monster would kill him for eating some fruit? After all, didn't Tlee call him her huckleberry? Moot licked his lips as a hundred little purple eyes stared at him, cloying, beckoning. His tongue was a parched fillet of fish. He checked in every direction for any ogresses, then reached across to the bush. He gingerly picked one, the small orb squeezing juice in between his fingers. He took a deep breath and popped it in his mouth. A sticky grin smoothed across his face. The boy grabbed a handful and as he chewed, added more berries to his satchel. This, he thought, is what adventures were all about. He sat against a mossy log and put his buckskin behind his head and the cedar hat over his face. As Moot dozed off, spruce branches rattled in the light wind, straight, proud, and tall, like villagers praising his intrepid spirit and magnanimous journey thus far. An eerie rustle pulled at Moot's heavy eyelids. The movement of foliage, he thought at first, could have been anything, and nothing of his concern. The low growls that succeeded these movements, however, were notably and decidedly something to the small boy. When he felt the full weight of a pouncing body, Moot screamed and tried to dash away. The hat flew off and huckleberries spilled from his satchel like marbles. He jerked and flailed, but was restrained by the twiggy arms of his older sister. Caught you, said Saya. You are such a jerk. You know how much that scared me? Moot shook her off and stomped around his napping log, gathering his satchel and hat and straightening his messy hair. As scared as you would have been if I were Luxowena? Moot stopped in his tracks as he tried to hide his sticky face. He quickly and vigorously wiped at the berry juice around his lips, but his nap had solidified it into viscous war paint. He had no words in retaliation. So, let me get this straight. You sneak off to the woods to eat huckleberries? Sayo was at once delighted and perturbed, relieved and horrified. To think she had a brother who would defy such a strict ordinance of the Alsi. On the other hand, maybe Moot was braver than she thought. I didn't mean to. I got hungry. And thirsty. There's a drought going on, you know. Plus, I've been walking for hours. And then, well, and then I must have fallen asleep. Yes, I figured that part out. Saya grinned and practiced her ogress walk some more. Saya, why are you even here? I want to be alone. Oh, come on. Can I be alone with you? Mom's worried. There was nothing new about that statement. 
she sent me to look for you after you didn't come to breakfast. And now that you've clearly had breakfast and lunch, we can go back home. I don't want to go home. I'm on a nature walk. Like, Moot discontinued his thought, say his arrogant big sisterly look softened. Like me and Ta used to do, said Moot softly. Moot didn't have to say anything else for the heavy, somber understanding to fall on Saya's chest. She missed her father, too. He was the only one who encouraged her to learn what she wanted, pursue new ways of thinking, new ways of doing. She knew Moot missed him, and so did she. But she missed Ta for reasons she assumed were synonymous with her brothers. It was only at this moment it occurred to the young girl that their shared emptiness could occupy different places of their hearts. I get it, she whispered. She knelt to meet Moot's eyes. Did you have a good walk? Maybe you can tell me about it on the way back. He shook his head and swatted at sticky tears. Please, Saya, I don't want to go back. Not yet. His eyes were deep, black, new moons. Saya squinted through the trees and examined the translucent shadows on the still forest floor. She supposed they could continue on for just a little longer. Okay, she said, but only for another hour or so. Then we need to get back. Moot had already swiveled on his toes and was off hopping across stones in the creek bed. Hey, wait up, called Saya. The siblings traipsed through the wilderness in the late afternoon radiance. Miles away, the village carried on as it always did, unencumbered by the weight of any one decision. A story about two children wandering through the woods is neither interesting nor dramatic. That is, for purely one elemental reason. Light. Once light is extinguished, the previously seen becomes insidious, the previously known becomes deviant, the previously straight becomes aberrant. In the waning hours and minutes of light, the incurious past and reluctant future simultaneously teeter into that unwelcome convergence of now. That is a story to tell. Did it just get dark really fast? Saya said as she tripped over a spiraling vine. Moot, putting on a brave face unseen by either sibling, tried to ignore her question. We're on our way back, at least. We are? Moot stopped dead in his tracks. What do you mean? He tipped back the brim of his hat. Are we? How should I know? I was following you. This was your adventure, remember? Saya, stop joking around with me. Shut up! I'm not. I was following you. I thought you knew where you were going. Moot threw up his hands. Dark birds made a startling leap from a nearby tendriless tree. You were the one who came to get me to bring me home. And you wanted to keep walking. Reality laid upon Moot's shoulders like a village elder who had forgotten their cane. He shouldn't have come out here without Ta. This was idiotic. Now they were lost. He had no way of knowing where they were. He wasn't one of the five brothers. He was a dumb little boy in his father's big hat. Saya could read her brother's mind even in the dusky malaise. We are not lost, okay? We can figure this out. She took her brother by the shoulders and repeated herself as the boy's lip quivered. She thought quickly, trying to grasp at any surrounding vantage, mining her memory for any stump or branch. But it all looked the same. That gave the girl an idea. Did it sound the same? Of course not. That's it, she said. If we can hear the ocean, that's west. Then all we have to do is walk east to the village. Saya and Moot both shut their eyes hard and listened. Their ear canals widened for the entry of waves, brines, seagulls, wind, anything. I think I heard something, said Moot. But did he? He couldn't be sure. The mounting darkness provided any assurance he needed. Moot pinpointed the imaginary sound and they started to walk the opposite direction. The thick forest took any noise and suffocated it. Moot led his sister through brush, moss, rocks, and shrubs. There was no ocean. And to the boy, that was a good sign. 
although his eyes began to play tricks on him. Through the trees, he saw golden flashes here and there. A dorsal fin, a tail, a wandering eye, swimming softly through the black and blue evening, always out of reach, always beckoning him closer. Did you see that? He would ask, but eventually he stopped because his sister was getting frightened by the question and its implications. However, he saw it. It was there. Whatever it was. The darkness set in thicker and deeper now. Trees were indistinguishable from each other, from the sky. The forest was a solid black wall. Saya and Moot's breathing competed and their stomachs rumbled in unison. It wasn't morning yet, not even close, thought Saya. That meant it was still today. But how long had they been out here? The night will do that. Extend a moment to the point of interminability. Perhaps it's the solitude that makes time seem so much longer. The lack of sight is also an option. Or maybe the idea that behind any curious sound is the ability to cut this unbearable interminability to a halt. Forever. They stopped at a log by a creek that looked identical to the log by the creek where Saya had found Moot sleeping. Moot dug out a last hunk of salmon he found clinging to an interior fold of his satchel and they ate. Their fingers fought the cold to tear the brittle meat apart. Their jaws ached to even chew the hardtack. What are we going to do? Moot asked his sister, shivering. Saya tried to put on a brave face, but the light was too low for it to comfort Moot. So she tried to exude it through her voice. We will be okay. I promise you, nothing is going to happen. A twig snapped nearby and the children shot to attention. Their small hearts beat in terrified unison as a figure strolled through their periphery. Dead leaves rustled and Saya grabbed Moot, who grabbed her back. What do, you, what do you think that was? Said the boy, his head buried in his sister's arms. I don't know, Saya wanted to say, but she didn't. She gritted her teeth and tried to examine the blackness, to place the sound. They stood petrified, watching an aura of golden light dip in front of and behind the trees, seeming to exist in perennial ephemerality. The figure stayed its course, neither moving closer nor further away, until the boy decided to summon it. Hello? You! Who's there? The figure stopped with a faint crackle of leaves. It approached delicately, decadently, light emanating from pores, celestial yellow eyes. When it stopped, it barely touched the ground. It was at ease in the forest, moving as if it had never existed anywhere else, and yet with an assuredness one could only acquire by existing everywhere else. Who, who's there? I said. Who are you? Moot stepped valiantly in front of his sister, who stood over a head taller than him, even on his toes. A calm growl of a voice answered his question with another. Are you children lost? I said. Yeah, no, said the girl. I stepped closer and they receded. My tan buckskin robe washed light across their chilly faces. Are you sure? Saya and Moot looked at each other, not knowing the correct response. We're just, we're on our way back to our village. Saya cleared her throat and mulled over the vagueness of her response. We are Alcy, added Moot. His sister nudged him for adding the superfluous detail. I know. I chuckled at the obviousness of his statement. And that means you are quite far from your village. You know where our village is? I do. I smiled at each of them individually, then held my hands behind my back and looked at the stars through the dark trees. I know where every village is in this land. I know every star in the sky. And I have visited them all, in fact. Saya furrowed her brow. Th the villages? Or the stars. Why are you out here at night? Oh, sometimes I like to walk in the woods. My tan, I used to do that, Moot said. Saya hushed him immediately. 
That sounds lovely, I said to the boy. A breeze shook the forest as the siblings rubbed their shoulders. Well, I think we ought to be going now, Saya pulled Moot toward her and began to walk. Moot kept staring at me hypnotically, as if he'd seen me before, when in fact it was I who had seen him, and everyone else. I cleared my throat and they halted. <clears throat> you know, if you're going to your village that way, it's going to take quite a long time. They stood still, backs turned to me. Saya coolly turned around. Okay, so, so why don't you tell us where to go? I very well could. I walked among some dry brush, crossing a small stream without wetting my feet. My reflection percolated on the feeble remnants of water. Would you like me to tell you where to go? Is, is that okay? Said Moot. He started clutching his sister's clothing. Of course it is. I held up a hand, remembering something. There is, yes, there is one small hiccup. You see, for a service I provide, I would require compensation. Like, like what? Well, I'm afraid I could not tell you until you agreed. Saya bit her lip and did calculations in her mind. Why not? I stared with two blank, yellow eyes. I'm sorry. It's my payment for providing you assistance, and as the seller, I determine what the payment is and when it is agreed upon. I don't understand. Hmm. I tapped my chin in an explanatory theatric. Comprehension is tantamount to success, isn't it? Comprehension of friendships, treaties, surroundings, semantics. I have told you what I can offer. From my pocket I revealed a thin piece of cedar bark. A meandering root drawn upon it shimmered in the starlight. This is how you get back to your village. Not only that, it is a map to the end of the drought. You two would return triumphant. As heroes. Yes, a valuable token indeed. Moot's eyes widened. Two black marbles. How would it end the drought? Oh, the peculiarities of this world are hard to detail. Some things only come to pass if there is a path to that passage. But I'm simply asking if you would like the information or not. And if you would, I can tell you what I require in return. Rest assured, this is a fair transaction. Anything otherwise might result in, shall we say, unintended consequences. Moot and Saya deliberated as I indifferently gazed at the map, the route slightly molding and altering upon the bark as I shifted my stance and direction. Their bickering chirped through the silent evening. Moot kept glancing back at me. As heroes, my words echoed in his head. The five brothers hoisted him upon their shoulders. The villagers built a sculpture in his honor. Nobody doubted his abilities again. All the stories he had heard his father tell over the years overlapped in his mind. He had a clear picture of me in his imagination. I cannot say if it exactly converged with the being he saw before him currently, but I can say I did not deter him from thinking any different. Eventually, the girl coughed and approached me. Ah, I said. So you two heroes have deliberated, yes? Er, yes, and we don't want your help. Saya, said Moot. We can find our way back on our own. I slowly put the map in my back pocket and masked my frustration with a sing-song reply. I see. Obviously, I cannot force you to do anything. It's a shame, though. I enjoy helping those who need it. And the village, let alone all this land, could use the water. But, alas, some simply do not want my help. Some simply do not want to answer the call for bravery. Safe travels, young ones. I started to make my way back into the forest. Moot and Saya took off walking briskly in the wrong direction. 
But interestingly enough, the trees in that direction became thicker, impossible to navigate, and the path simply vanished. Strange how something like that could happen. This is when the boy called after me. I grinned and turned around to greet him once again. Yes? In the darkness, his quivering eyes looked like two jellyfish at the bottom of the sea. He really was a natural thespian. Saya grabbed her brother by the arms. Moot, we'll be fine. We just need to find our way home, okay? I need your help. Her breath birthed wispy, anthropomorphic beasts which drifted and dissipated between them. I'm... I'm scared, Saya, he said, making sure I could hear. Very interesting tactic, indeed. A worthy challenger. I just want to go home. I shouldn't have tried to come out here like Ta. Nonsense! You are his son. You know what he knows. So do I. And we can find our way back. Saya closed her eyes and uttered a string of omnisyllabic ancient phrases like an incantation. She moved her hands in circles and waved her fingers dexterously. Then she pressed her palms hard into Moot's forehead and squeezed. There, she said. That will give you the bravery you need. We need. Ready to go? Moot silently felt his sore forehead as I observed the siblings. Saya smiled proudly. She, of course, didn't want to tell him that was just a string of ancient words for vegetables she had recently learned from a village shaman. But she wanted to get home, too. Moot sighed heavily. Please, he turned to me and said. You don't have to help us. Maybe just just give us a hint, that's all. Please? Moot rushed toward me and wrapped his arms around my waist. I patted the boy's head as the girl growled for her brother to return to her side. I am afraid I cannot help you if your sister does not approve. I unhooked the boy's arms from my waist and knelt in front of him. He looked deep into my eyes as yellow light washed across his face like the morning sky. But you're clever, right? Maybe you won't return a hero, but you'll figure out a way home. Won't you, Moot? And perhaps you may figure out how to make the clouds rain. Who am I to say? Moot nodded slowly, a fearful straight face taut on his skull. He wore the mask of a frightened child over one of a coyote. I wanted the boy to try to be a hero. I enjoy when people try in vain, when they truly believe they have the upper hand. It amuses me. It pleases me. It almost circumvents the need for a lesson to be taught. Almost. Sometimes a little mischief is too potent to pass up. I rose and observed the children again. Well, it seems all I can do is wish you good luck. Not too much, of course. Too much of a good thing is, well, I digress. Goodbye, children. Saya pulled Moot back toward her and nodded. I nodded too and slowly walked back into the woods. As sly or cunning as a child may think they are, their intellect is still not fully realized. And attempting to pull wool over someone's eyes is in fact beneficial if that someone is a wolf. Moot thought his movements were so swift, so effortless when he slid the map out of my pocket and into his hand. It was refreshing to spar with a worthy opponent. He played coy when in fact he was certain he had tricked the fabled trickster. That he had at first disobeyed and then outsmarted his maker. Had he looked closer, he would have known that was nothing short of untrue. Now, he held the map inside his satchel where Saya couldn't see. If she could have, she would have been furious. Far more furious than seeing a bag full of berries. But as it stood, his sister would only be the bystander of a navigational and climatic miracle even she couldn't quite believe. Moot kept the map hidden as he dashed deliberately through thick trees. Its bright glow sometimes caught the glint of his eyes and made Saya question what he kept looking at. It's nothing, he kept saying. He would get them home. The villagers would rejoice. The world would be righted. I know the way now, just like Ta. So we have to keep going. I remember where we are now. It's not far. This way. He spoke in curt, gestural phrases, at once assured of himself 
and completely uncertain what curse he had unleashed. Only Moot could see the gathering fireflies that mirrored the line on the map. He followed them steadily through the night. They clustered and vanished, clustered and vanished, a tracking spotlight showing the boy the direction home. Still, now and again, a heavenly whale swam beside him in the distance, weaving through spruce like seaweed. Say could barely keep up with her brother as he tore through the woods. She would never have revealed to Moot how scared she was and how relieved she was right now, but she couldn't have been happier when the first plumes of chimney smoke crested the forest canopy. There! she shouted. Moot, you did it! It's the village! She took her brother's hand and they sprinted faster than they ever had. It was barely dawn, far too early for the vivacious yells of children coursing past slumbering households. Families stepped outside in the frigid air to address the commotion, only to see a blur of two little bodies. When they reached their house on the far eastern outskirts, Klee was sitting on the front step. No doubt she was worried. When she heard the cries of her children, her arms swung wide. Moot and Saya plunged into her like she was a warm bed, like they were two fish and she was the ocean. Her tears nearly froze on their cheeks. Before their mother said anything, Saya said, We know, Tli, we are so, so sorry. The woman simply nodded, nodded and breathed the smell of the two most important things in the world. It was my fault, said Moot. Saya found me and wanted to bring me home and... It doesn't matter, said Tli. You're home now. You're home now. As Moot clutched his mother, her words resonated within him, an echo in a cave. He had done it. He crossed the Rubicon of boy to man. He had outwitted a god. He was a savior. The children pulled away and Tlee caressed their faces. The dry morning air and fire smoke made their eyes tired. Moot wondered when the rain would start. The whole way home, he felt phantom droplets on his skin that may have been his sweat or may have been the anticipation of his new heroic stature. As he wondered, Moot felt something fall on his head. Something he hadn't felt in so long. Saya and Tlee looked at the boy curiously. Then all looked to the sky. Another raindrop fell. Then another. And another. They all held out their hands, laughing. When their cup palms filled, Tlee ran inside to retrieve a bucket. This was it, thought Moot. His reward for his bravery. It must be. And so expedient, too. The end of a drought. He had saved the day. The village. See? said Saya. We didn't need a map or a deal with anyone. We can be heroes all on our own. You got us home, Moot, and we were rewarded. Moot held his head high as more families sleepily emerged from their houses to feel the rain in the cold morning. Children and elderly folk danced in the soggy mulch as drizzled wetness spread across the land. The rain persisted through the day. Although it was winter, the people rejoiced outside without coats, feeling the reemergence of life as they knew it. Moot was proud of himself for bringing rain back to his community. Saya was proud of herself for finding her little brother and enchanting him with the spirit to get them home. Tlee was happy it was raining, but also slightly worried she would need another bucket. Through the evening, the earth absorbed all it could. The spruce trees wept and the soil sputtered. The medley of this forgotten element lulled the tribe to sleep with a reassurance none had felt in quite a while. It rained more. So much that Moot's cave began to fill in, and once it was full, water seeped through the floorboards of the little forest house in the village outskirts. As morning drew near, Moot awoken to the same patter which permeated his dreams. The boy yawned in triumph, swung his feet over his bed, and placed them on the floor. Water rippled around his ankles. The coldness shot through his feet and up his spine. He looked across the room to his sleeping sister and mother. Slee! he shouted. Saya! They opened their eyes drowsily and observed their increasingly aquatic surroundings. Tlee jumped out of bed and began to rescue floor-dwelling heirlooms like baskets and rugs and other practical items like firewood and shoes. 
Moot ran outside to check on his cave. He sprinted around the house to the hole in the ground, but there was no hole. There was sludge and mud gathered from hours of rainfall. He collapsed and began to dig, frantically tearing at the soaked earth. But it was no use. He heard a loud crack and a yell from a nearby house. He squinted hard through the rain and saw the second tree land on its roof. The forest became alive with villagers gathering, saving, lifting, scurrying. Moot thought back to the previous evening, to that beautiful feeling of completion. A cycle of drought fulfilled by a new cycle of rain. But could he bear to think he caused this morning chaos? Could he? Moot looked around him and over his shoulders. He looked to the sky. What chaos? Yes, I suppose it doesn't seem too overwhelming as of now. Moot stood wet, muddy, and scared that the voice he heard, the voice he addressed, it answered. I am not scared. Oh, I think you are, Mootchik. Perhaps a gathering rain, a flood, doesn't qualify as a climactic swell for a story. After all, at this rate, the flooding could take days to reach an insurmountable level. So, what if it didn't take days? What if it was so powerful that it took only seconds? Moot trudged back to the house through waist-deep water. Villagers tried to comprehend where this excess came from, if not the sky opening a direct current from the ocean. More trees began to buckle under sheer pressure, their trunks in rapid, dampened decay. Moot! screamed Tlee. Get in the house where it's safe! Quick! Moot charged through the door and Tlee slammed it behind him. Water soaked the beds. Baskets and buckets floated by. The family needed to shout over the storm to communicate, the rain thwacking the roof like a thousand stones. And still, Moot wondered if this was all his fault. If all this destruction was caused by a little boy trying to be a man. Stop! Saying that, he shouted, I'm only telling you what you're already thinking. Moot dunked underwater and found his satchel. In the murkiness, a golden sparkle emanated from its interior. He came up for air and dug through the bag to find the map. Even in the darkness, it still glimmered like fireflies. What is that? said Saya. She sloshed through the water towards him. Moot quickly hid the map behind his back, but it was no use as Saya could see over his head to his hands gripping the bark. It's not anything. It's nothing. Go on, I said. Show her. It's not anything. Saya grabbed the map and froze. Her soaking body trembled as it held the piece of bark. Moot, where did you get this? Moot frowned and looked at his reflection in the rising water. Thunderous rain shook the roof. Moot? From the man in the woods. What do you mean? It was in his back pocket, remember? When I hugged him, I pulled it out. That's why I did it. I was trying to help. I, you know, I outsmarted him. Like the five brothers. I saved the village. Saya looked at the map and her surroundings in horror. You didn't outsmart him. You did exactly what he wanted. He said there would be consequences. So the girl was smart, after all. What do you mean? I took it. I didn't ask him for it. We didn't get his help. Who do you think made that map? I said. Moot and Saya looked at each other and then looked to the sky in fear. But the voice was in their ears. I would call that helping, Moot. Wouldn't you? Saya growled and ripped the bark to pieces, then dusted it upon the water. The shards sunk like dying stars in the night sky. There, okay? We don't have your map anymore. You can stop this. Stop it! But it's already begun, I'm afraid. See? I can't stop what has already begun. I can only say what happens now. Moot and Saya heard a large crash outside. Both Moot and Saya ran to the door, terrified at what the sound might be. They opened a flood of water and had to cling to the threshold to not lose footing. The two closest houses to theirs splintered into flotsam and rushed away in the blink of an eye. 
Flea grabbed her children before the door to the house ripped off and sailed down the gathering current. Screams faltered and dampened in the flood as more trees crashed upon houses, more houses disintegrated into droplets. Please, Moot pleaded. I didn't mean to. Please make this stop. Just make this stop. Bodies floated past the house as the family held each other. A canoe rode the current as Moot looked on in horror. Ta! Moot dashed outside and tripped. He got sucked underwater, tumbling in a wake of gurgles and chokes. Say and Tlee's screams were extinguished by the waves as Moot struggled to find which way was up. As he got pulled further along, he hit his head on a broken tree limb. He saw an inky red cloud emerge from his head and time slowed. He watched the clouds spread apart, then reform, held together and cleaved by the water. As he observed it, he saw bubbles floating harmoniously in a single direction. He wanted to follow them, but couldn't. His frozen arms wouldn't move. His tired eyes started to close. Something grabbed him and ripped him into the atmosphere. Pa swam with the boy under his arm. He swam hard, so hard the current made way for him. Ta hauled Moot's body over the side of the canoe. Moot gasped and coughed and wiped his eyes in the feverish rain. He leapt to the side of the boat to try to reach out to his father. Maybe if he held on to something, Ta could get in as well. He extended a hand, screamed for his father to take hold, but Moot felt nothing. Ta bobbed effortlessly in the water. He only smiled that same heavenly smile, the one that greeted Moot every morning and ushered him to sleep every night. Ta grabbed the stern of the canoe, then gave a forceful push that rocketed Moot away as he watched his father disappear for the second time. Before he could try to call after him, Moot was jostled by a loud thud against the side of the canoe. Say and Tlee pulled Moot back into the doorless house. Are you okay? Are you okay? Tlee screamed and caressed the face of her baby boy. Moot spit more water and tried to look past the house, the trees, the carnage. I saw Ta! He saved me! He was right there! We have to help him! Tlee and Saya didn't reply, they just hugged him tightly as he pleaded. Moot fought against them, but the mother and daughter held him in place and shivered as he cried. No! Let me go! Please, let me go! I saw him! I saw him! I know, said Tlee. She kept repeating it in his ear. He bawled and leaned hard into his mother, at first fighting her and then slowly giving into her voice while she rocked him gently. He longed to take it all back, to hear the crackle of a crisp, dry leaf on barren dirt. As Moot's heartbeat steadied, the rain began to die down. Brush and debris smacked the house as it floated away. For a brief respite, the family caught their breath. Moot opened his eyes and blinked tears and raindrops down his cheeks. For the slightest moment, Moot actually thought it was over. Even I thought it was over. But what is set in motion cannot falter. The earth began to rumble. The floodwaters bubbled at the surface and the remaining conifers shed their needles in the commotion. What was happening, they wondered. What is happening, cried Saya. Please make it stop. Still holding each other close, the family watched the remaining villagers do the same. Through the forest, brittle houses were filled with frightening tenants. The earth rumbled on until it ceased. The noise, the force, the water, everything. For one tedious, sustained second. Moot's shivers echoed across the forest as their world as they knew it held together. And then, it changed forever. The land outside the little house vanished in a wall of water. What was solid became a particulate mass of fog and memory. It crashed down into the sea. People, homes, trees, earth, screams, all swallowed up in an instant of pure destruction. Pure undoing. It happened fast. Faster than a flame extinguishes to smoke. 
And when it was over, a sheer cliff slowly came into view through the parting clouds. Where there once had been lush forest, the land simply ended. The rain stopped and floodwater spilled over the cliff, and an ocean flowed to a vast horizon. All was still. All was gone. The trembling family dared not say a word. They did not praise the earth or thank their maker for sparing them. But they undoubtedly felt his power. They sat, a huddled mass clutching each other, trembling in the faint February light, grasping at any fold of fabric or lock of hair available. Wide-eyed, they beheld the edge of the earth, the new frontier that had revealed itself at their doorstep. The children had aged lifetimes, shedding their youth like the sheared cliffside. They would continue as witnesses in life and death, see others come and go, make this land their home and have it ripped away from them. A people dismantled, a nation manifested, a whole village swallowed by the sea, a forest of trees turned to ghosts. It made no difference to the land. The land was a molten, unstable vessel. The land was young. Thanks for listening to Loveless Oregon. If you want to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash loveless.com.